Well, today we're back in our series called We Preach Christ. We've been considering how we, the church, might follow the Apostle Paul's example of preaching that he did in the city of Corinth in the first century. Today we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where Paul tells this church what he did when he came and preached Christ to them, leading them to believe in Jesus. This text recalls what we saw a couple weeks back in Acts 18, and it explains his preaching from both the human and the divine side. And much attention will be given to what the Holy Spirit did and does to make believers. And I hope we're seeing that while the gospel and evangelism are simple enough, they are far from shallow. The things of the gospel are the very deep things of God that can only be received and perceived rightly if the Spirit of God himself reveals them to us. Indeed, the Holy Spirit has opened and revealed a whole new world to us believers through the cross, hasn't he? We've come to see that the cross isn't only our salvation, it's also redefined and redefining everything I know about this life. By the Holy Spirit who opened my eyes to believe, I now have the Spirit of Christ and I now have the mind of Christ who gives me a whole new way of thinking, of living, and being in this world. Last week we saw that the God who opened our eyes to believe redefines how we see knowledge, status, people, power, and wisdom, and even achievements. And today we we'll see how we access and appreciate and apply God's wisdom. And by now, you'll probably not be surprised to hear that this wisdom comes to us, not by our hard work, but as a gift from God through the cross as the Spirit reveals these things to us. We are so dependent on God that he must reveal himself in the gospel to us. And we receive his gospel when we, sorry, and when we receive his gospel, we receive the God of the gospel, that is the Holy Spirit, who renews our mind, redefines how we see things by giving us the very mind of Christ. It's not that the Spirit shows us new things. He shows us and brings home the true things of Christ to our hearts so that we see these true things in Scripture as though they were new things, right? He's the living God and he's actively working through his living word, pressing it into our hearts. So far in this series, we've thought about how it is that God works in and through believers like us to bring the word of the cross, the word of salvation to those who we witness to. But as far as effectively bringing people to salvation in the Lord Jesus, we recognize that salvation is from the Lord and ultimately the Holy Spirit must drive the word home to people's hearts so that they believe. It could be and should be said that God is the best preacher of all time. Because as far as salvation goes, he never misses. Those he calls believe, and those who believe are saved. It's ultimately him who convinces anyone to believe in Jesus. He calls and saves through the preaching of the cross. We might say that the Father preaches to the world by his Son's cross. And the Spirit personally witnesses and reveals Christ crucified to us who believe, even through human preachers. And we see and hear the heart of God revealed in the cross. 
God's heart has been opened to us by the Spirit who understands the very depths of God's heart and graciously guides us into a knowledge of his heart. Which means he not only leads us to believe in Christ for salvation, but he's leading us deeper into the life of Christ as we mature. Today's text teaches not only about the activity of the Spirit in bringing us to salvation, but also about the activity of the Spirit in bringing us into greater maturity in our salvation. In other words, the same Spirit who revealed the deep things of the gospel to our hearts to save us keeps revealing these deep things of the gospel to our hearts to mature us. Believers don't mature by moving on from the gospel, but by moving deeper into it, right? And today I hope to show you that believers are to rely on God's wisdom and power in Christ as revealed by the Spirit. Believers are to rely on God's wisdom and power in Christ as revealed by the Spirit. That's where we're going today, but first let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to ask that as we dig into your word today, that you would be honored and glorified, that your spirit would guide us closer to your heart, to your son, into your word, Lord, that we would gaze at the beauty of the Lord today and that we would be ushered into your presence and uh, respond in praise. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing we see in today's text is that believers are to rely on God's power as revealed by the Spirit in preaching. Believers are to rely on God's power as revealed by the Spirit in preaching. So as we saw last week, the church in Corinth had become divided over their favorite preachers. They were creating cliques, fighting over who was connected to which personality. And Paul responded by telling them that the only division and connection that really matters is the division that the cross creates between human beings, between those who are connected to Jesus by faith and those who aren't. Now, their obsession with personalities is not completely alien to us today. We may find certain preachers more relatable and enjoyable than others, understandable. But the challenge at Corinth was that they were questioning Paul's God-given authority as an apostle because they weren't fans of his preaching. Paul even quotes what they're saying about him in 2 Corinthians 10.10 where he says, they are talking about Paul here, okay? They say this of him. His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. They were judging Paul based on his presence and his preaching. And as far as they could tell, he was unimpressive physically and his speaking skills were nothing to write home about. Now, why would they put so much emphasis on the speaker? Well, context helps us here. See, in the city of Corinth, rhetoric was a big deal. To be an orator or a speaker was a big deal. The city loved a good speech, like we might like a good fight or a good football game, right? It was their form of entertainment. It was often also a competition to them. In that day and age, it was common in Corinth to find people working on their speeches in order to create a crowd and stir up an applause. 
Uh, they saw, uh, you uh, see people, orators, giving speeches, elaborate speeches at dinners between courses. A little bit of a different culture than ours, isn't it? <laughs> but they saw a well-put-together speech uh, or a well-put-together argument uh, as a display of human wisdom and brilliance and power. And the great showdown of rhetoric would be showcased at the Asminian Games. Uh, maybe like the Olympics today, the city of Corinth hosted this Asminian Games back in that day every two years. And one of the competitions in the Games was the event of rhetoric, giving a great speech or an argument. And how do you win in this competition? You have judges and you need to be judged by others on how good your argumentation is, how good your rhetoric is. Now, here's the rub, right? We get it now? We get it? The Corinthians thought they had the right to judge Paul based on the same criteria as the judges who would, use, who would uh, uh, judge the rhetoricians or the orators of the day. And they were judging Paul based on, not on his message, but based on the same criteria of the popular, popular speakers of the day. They judged his preaching of Christ based on his skill in debate, rhetoric, and human argumentation. And as far as they were concerned, he was not impressive. He would not get a 10. The mindset of the city of Corinth about speakers had crept into the mindset of the church, even about the Apostle Paul. And yet, Paul says he gained preaching Christ with a straightforward simplicity. He knew what they were expecting, and he wasn't playing that game. The point of his preaching wasn't to create a fan base for himself, but to point people to Jesus Christ. So he came into the city which prized good speaking skills, preaching the cross of Christ, which was an impolite theme. And he came preaching the cross of Christ without eloquence so that they would rely not on him, but on the God who saved them and who saves them. Paul's not saying that his preaching was anti-intellect. In fact, in this passage before us today, we'll see that while being pro-simple preaching, he is also pro-wisdom and pro-power. But he wants to show them that the wisdom and power are from God, not his style, not his skill in debate. And he maintains that there is wisdom and power to be found in simply preaching Christ, and it's found in God himself. Now, with all this in mind, we come to verses 1 to 5. Here's how he tells them about his preaching in this city of Corinth with that backdrop. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness And in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. One paraphrase of verses 4 to 5 says, My speech and my proclamation were not with enticing clever words, but by transparent proof brought home powerfully by the Holy Spirit that your faith should not rest on human cleverness, but on God's power. So it is. In this passage, we see Paul's message in verses 1 to 2. We see Paul's manner in verses 3 to 4. And we see Paul's motivation in verse 5. 
His style and his substance were very different from the style and substance of the speakers they were used to seeing in that city. He didn't come with a flair in his preaching nor in his presence. It almost seems that in person he had a stage fright about him. Maybe even a timid presence. Maybe even shaking. He was trembling apparently as verse 3 says. He came in weakness in verse 3 with fear and trembling, possibly sobered by his responsibility to preach to them before God, and also, I think, aware of the spiritual battle that was raging. We're reminded of what we saw in Acts 18. When Paul came to the city, he came to the synagogue, met opposition there, so he went to the neighbor's house and preached Jesus from the Old Testament, right? His emphasis was not on style, but on getting the message across that Jesus was the Christ. He proclaimed the crucified Christ. The cross was the point of his preaching because the cross is where God's power, his love, and wisdom is displayed. He told people that Jesus was the Lord and Messiah that the Old Testament pointed to. This was the testimony of God in Scripture that Jesus, God's Son, came and fulfilled the law and the prophets and died for his people. Paul came not as a sophisticated uh, philosopher or debater of the day. He came as a Christian preacher aiming to persuade them to believe in Jesus. That was his aim. And unlike the speakers of that day, he didn't come with tricks up his sleeves. He was a straightforward preacher and his manner was different too. He didn't come with all the pomp and circumstance and self-advertising and self-promotion that these preachers would come with or these speakers would come with. He came to lock, let God's word out. The Spirit of God then took that word and worked it into their hearts, convincing them to believe in Jesus. He was simply a messenger, making the message of Christ clear, letting God's word out, and leaving the results to the Lord. What was true of Paul's preaching was not that it lacked power, but it lacked the typical human show that they equated with power. So once again, the, the cross needed to redefine how they saw things, how they judged things. He didn't come as a star, but as a servant, not trying to trick with words, but to get to the heart of the gospel, Christ crucified. And the motivation of such simple preaching was, as verse 5 says, that the church would rest its faith not on any one human being's wisdom or eloquence, but in the power of God. And we saw in Acts 18 that many of the Corinthians believed and were baptized. If this simple mode of preaching was fruitful and effective, bringing them to believe in Christ, that was a demonstration not of Paul's intelligence or expertise, but of the Spirit's activity and power to save. The gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, right? Speaking of this verse, Anthony Thistleton says, Paul's authority lay not in smooth, competent, impressive powers of articulation, but in a faithful and sensitive proclaiming rendered operative not by the applause of the audience, but by the activity of God. Unless power is given to the speaker by God, preaching cannot touch the human heart. Amen. Christ crucified is where the heart of God is revealed and it's where God powerfully speaks to our hearts, right? The Spirit of God who shows us God's wisdom and power in the cross where Jesus died, atoned for our sins, rose again, He powerfully saves those who believe. 
We rest not on the eloquence of speakers, the eloquence of words to save. We rest on the Lord himself to save us. And once we're saved, we see that this is a demonstration of the Spirit's power working through human preachers. So let me ask you, are you resting your faith on God's power to save you through his Son? If you haven't come to Jesus for salvation, please talk to someone today. Ask around. We'd love to talk more with you about these things. And as for us who have believed, we've experienced the power of God in the preaching of the word. It's a demonstration of the Spirit. Have you had the privilege of leading others to Jesus? Do you see the dynamics that were at play in that? Don't fret that you didn't get it perfect if you're sharing Christ with a friend, with a family member, with someone in uh, fusion or someone in Sunday school. Perfection is not the point. But did you tell them about Christ crucified? Did you get to the cross? Did you get to the Christ? If so, then trust the Spirit to work powerfully. Pray for people and keep on preaching Christ to them. Leave the results to the Lord. Now, all this talk about a simple message may give us the impression that Paul was anti-logic or even anti-wisdom. But that's not the case. Rather, his emphasis is on showing the gospel for what it is. And his emphasis of, of showing the gospel for what it is is meant to show believers what true wisdom and power really are and where they're fine in Christ crucified. And as we'll see, he desires to bring a message of wisdom to those believers uh, to, the, to the believers so that they'll mature in these things by resting on God and what he's revealed in the gospel. Now we've talked a lot about the human side of preaching thus far in this series. And at this point we're peeking behind the curtain as it were to understand the invisible divine side of preaching. What God does by using people and how the spirit works through people. I hope you'll get excited about these things. We've seen how Paul witnesses and persuades people about the wisdom found in Jesus. But now let's see how God the Holy Spirit himself witnesses and persuades people about the wisdom found in Jesus. The rest of this passage is focused on what the Holy Spirit did to bring the Corinthians to believe. And what can be said of the Corinthian believers can be said of us believers too. So be sure to push these verses deep down into your heart as we make them personal. Next we see, we see believers are to rely on God's wisdom as revealed by the Spirit. All right, look at verse 6 and 7. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So Paul imparts wisdom to mature believers, to true believers who are growing in their walk with Christ. A wisdom is to be found in the cross, a wisdom not of or from this world, and a wisdom that the world misses out on. It's wisdom from another world. Indeed, it's a different wisdom than what the rulers of this age deem wise, and that's because it's hidden from them. And it's used to be, and it used to be hidden from us before we believed. We didn't see the wisdom in the cross. The crucified Christ was once a secret or mystery and hidden wisdom to us. But now, because of the Spirit's work, we see. 
We couldn't discover, we couldn't penetrate, we couldn't appropriate or even open up the wisdom of God. But God revealed these truths to our hearts. What was once hidden from us in our unbelief is now revealed by the Spirit who revealed the cross for what it is, God's glorious plan of salvation for sinners like us to come back to him. Scripture says it was decreed before the creation of the world, before the ages. This is the wisdom of God, to bring people to salvation through the old rugged cross. Now, that's not the same wisdom that the unbelieving rulers of this age, the political, religious, and social elites have found. In fact, Paul says in the first century when he wrote this, none of the rulers of this age understood God's wisdom because if they did, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. He'll say that in the next verse. So God discloses his wisdom from above to whoever he pleases. And once the Spirit enables us to see and apply Christ's wisdom and power, it brings us into maturity as believers. He now contrasts worldly wisdom with the wisdom of God, and this contrast of God's wisdom and the wisdom of this age also contrasts the two paths and destinies of these wisdom, of these wisdoms. As James said, there is an earthly and a heavenly wisdom. Speaking on these verses, Richard Pratt says, this eternal wisdom was also destined for our glory, unlike the wisdom of this age, which is earthly, temporal, and brings destruction. The wisdom of the gospel is divine, eternal, and it brings the glory of eternal life to those who believe. So mature believers receive wisdom from God. We believers are revelation receivers. God reveals these things to us. He initiated both the giving and receiving of his revelation in Christ, in Christ crucified as his spirit sees to it that we as his people receive what God has done for us in Christ. And he does this not only by communicating words to us that we receive in Scripture through preachers, but we receive the Holy Spirit himself when we believe. He comes to live in us and with us, and he actively, personally reveals the things of God to us. In Scripture, in the person and work of Christ, in the power of the cross, the Word and the Spirit work together. The Spirit of God, who is God, works in us, in agreement with the word of God, pressing home the wisdom of God to our hearts. That's how a Christian matures in wisdom, and mature believers possess and impart this wisdom to other believers. But this wisdom is still hidden from the unbelieving world. Look at verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So if the unbelieving rulers of Jesus' day had received God's wisdom in the cross, they wouldn't have crucified Jesus. This verse shows us that those who crucified Christ wouldn't have done it if they knew what they were doing and who Jesus is. They had blood on their hands for crucifying the Messiah. They sinned against God with a high hand and had bad intentions. But perhaps there's an irony in this verse. Unbelievers like Herod, Pilate, the religious and political leaders and rulers of that day, they opposed Jesus, even to the point of crucifying him, right? A wicked act. And it appears this verse is saying that they did this because God's wisdom in the cross was hidden from them. Yet if God had not kept this hidden from them, they might not have carried out this crucifixion. 
While it was the place of his death, it was also the place of our salvation. He atoned for our sin on the cross. It's where Jesus, the Lord of glory, is glorified for putting to death the powers of sin, death, and Satan. So here's the point. Because the unbelievers who crucified Jesus couldn't see God's wisdom in the cross, they carried out a task which was the means of our salvation. Being ignorant of things, they actually carried out a wicked act that brought about salvation for believers. So God even used these wicked men to carry out an evil deed which would bring about the salvation of us who believe. They crucified Jesus, and that was God's plan to save us. And they did this because in their unbelief, the wisdom of God was hidden from them. Remember what Peter says in Acts 2, 23 and 24 of Jesus. It says this. This man was handed over to you by... Sorry, this morning I can't read, apparently. This morning was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him on the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to, hold, to keep its hold on him. And of this verse, uh, commentator Anthony Thistleton says, if they had had access to God's wisdom, which decreed the effects of the cross, or indeed could have known that the cross formed a central place in God's wise purposes, they would not have lent their aid unwittingly to furthering these purposes. So what they meant for evil in crucifying the Lord of glory, God meant for good. Now, hold those thoughts in your mind and take a moment to vent your praise as you look at verses 9 and 10. But as it is written... What no eye has seen, nor ear, heard, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So God's plan in the crucified Christ wasn't our idea. Our eyes didn't see it. Our ears didn't hear it. Our heart didn't conceive it. And we stand in awe as we consider it now. How he brings salvation to the ends of the earth through Jesus Christ crucified. How he governs the details of the crucifixion by wicked men's hands to be glorified by saving the weak and foolish things of the world like us. The gospel is a message that originated in God, not in us. It wasn't my plan, but God's plan. It wasn't even something I grasped before, or you grasped before. It can't even, I can't even grasp its depths now. Though because of the Spirit's activity, I do believe it. I believe only because the Spirit has revealed the depths of God in the gospel to me. And the NIV translates verse 10. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. So here is true wisdom, diving deep into the realities of the gospel, which are the very deep things of God. They are deep enough to save us and deep enough to mature us as believers. Fred Sanders explains verses 9 to 10 like this. Paul puts great emphasis on how profound, secret, 
and unaccessible to human understanding the blessings of the gospel are. If this divine wisdom has now been handed over to us in the gospel, it is by miracle because the origins of these things lie so deep within the heart of God that only God can know them. The mystery of the gospel is locked up inside of God and can be communicated only by someone who is God. Now hold that thought and remember what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit in John 15 verse 26. So the things of the gospel can only be received and communicated by someone who is God, right? Now let's consider who the Holy Spirit is. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Now we're talking about the divine side of witnessing here. And we're into the depths, aren't we? You have your snorkel. In theology, this is called the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. The way the Holy Spirit actively is involved in witnessing to believers about Jesus. In verse 10, we see that it is God the Holy Spirit who drives home the message about Jesus. It is the Holy Spirit who invisibly works to convince and persuade us of the Word of God, which testifies about the Son of God. The same Spirit who saves us by the Word sustains us by the same Word. Now, again, remember uh, John 16 also, when Jesus is speaking much about the Spirit's work in the believers, he says this, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What am I trying to say here? The Holy Spirit, who is God, the third person of the Trinity, communicates the things of God, the deep things of God to us. The Holy Spirit, who is God, knows the Father and the Son from eternity. He searches and reveals the truth of the cross to us. He comes to live in believers and interprets and communicates the deep things of God's heart to us. In the gospel, we, the, the Spirit uses, uh, works in and through the gospel, and he works in, in and through the believer's heart. Jesus said he comes from the Father and from the Son to guide us into all truth. He even speaks, it says. He declares, he glorifies Christ and he takes the things of Christ and declares them to us. He even bears witness about Christ, it says. Those are speaking words. So it is that the Spirit is actively working, speaking God's word of truth about Christ into our hearts. He speaks through his word, which testifies to what Christ has done on the cross. Indeed, he speaks through other speakers as they speak of Christ crucified from the word of the cross. This is how the Spirit leads. This is one of the ways He works to mature us. This is how we mature as believers, as God the Holy Spirit leads us further and deeper into the very heart of God in the Gospel. He leads us deeper into the heart of the Father for us and brings home the message of Christ crucified deeper and deeper. 
This is where wisdom, power, and identity can be found for the believer. As we let the Spirit lead us into the truth of Scripture, where we discover the things that God has revealed to us, which testify to what Christ has done for us, which show us how deep the Father's love is for us. This is how the Spirit leads. He reveals and leads us to believe in the Father's beloved Son, who is Scripture's centerpiece. The Spirit's work in the believer is to continually reveal the heart of God to us. He takes us deeper and deeper, further in, into the gospel, not on from the gospel. And that's how we mature. It's not like the Spirit who opens the door of our hearts and introduces us to God the Father through Christ the crucified Son, and then, says, and then He says, see you later. No, He comes to be with us. After we believe, even still, He accompanies with us in our Christian life. The Spirit who opens the door of our hearts and brings us down into the heart of God the Father through the Gospel, chauffeuring us, as it were, into God's heart. The gospel is not just a door of entry for the Christian. It's the happy place for the Christian to explore more and more of what the Lord has done for us in Christ. Now, friend, what do we say to these things? Do you believe in God the Father? Do you believe in Christ the Son? Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? The three-person God. After you believe that, you will come to find out that you believe because God revealed himself to you. And you will mature, not by moving on from these matters, but by going deeper into them. Further relying on the Spirit to reveal these truths to us. Now on that note, next we see believers are to rely on God's Spirit for discerning with the mind of Christ. Now, the, 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 the argument is connected here from verse 10, okay? So for, uh, he had just talked about the Spirit searching the deep things of God. Now he says, For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So here's Paul's logic. Nobody knows the inner thoughts of a person except for that person, right? No one knows what you're thinking. Nobody can truly read your mind. No one knows your heart except really you. We cannot truly read someone else's mind. Using this analogy, he says, so it is with God. No one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit who is from God who is God himself, but we believers actually receive the Spirit of God when we believe. So we actually do know the thoughts of God. This doesn't mean we're all-knowing like God is. God is infinite. He is incomprehensible. We can't completely comprehend all there is to know about God. But it does mean that God has indeed revealed his thoughts to us by the Spirit who authored his written word. The Spirit has revealed the things that he's freely given to us in Scripture and in his Son. But we wouldn't know those things, those deep things of the gospel, if God did not disclose them to us. As Karl Barth said, God is known through God alone. 
Now, how do we come to discern the wisdom that God discloses to us by the Spirit in his word, in his Son? All of this is by the Spirit. You'll miss out on the things of the Lord if you don't have the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 13 to 14. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So the wisdom that Paul imparts to believers is reserved for spiritual people. That is, true believers who have the Holy Spirit. Those are the only ones that will perceive and understand this wisdom that he intends to impart. But as we've seen, those who don't have the Spirit cannot penetrate these realities. The natural person only thinks on a human level. They don't have God-given spiritual perception yet. The wisdom of the Word and Spirit are not accepted nor understood by the natural person who only understands on a human level. They the natural person, that is, they still perceive the things of the Lord as folly, foolishness. But the spiritual truths of the Christian life are to be interpreted, understood, and discerned by the Spirit who lives in us and guides us into these truths. As the Spirit of God teaches us what God has revealed in Scripture, we're unlearning the way the Spirit of the world has taught us, the way the world taught us to think and relearn all things by discerning what God has freely given us in Christ. This is the road to spiritual maturity. Now, let's finish by thinking of these last two verses. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now, remember, Paul was being judged by these believers in Corinth based on the skill of his speaking, right? They were making judgments about him. Well, now Paul circles back to this, using their judgments on him as a maturity test for them. How they judge him shows whether or not they are spiritually mature and discerning people. It shows whether or not they have the mindset of Christ. Do they have the spirit of the age still in their mind, or do they have the mindset of Christ? It will show up in how they judge him. The gospel is to change the way we think and judge all things. And for these believers, it should show up in how they judge Paul. Then he quotes Isaiah, which speaks of the Lord's infinite wisdom and understanding. But surprisingly, he then applies this verse to the Lord Jesus and to those believers, saying, but we have the mind of Christ. We believers have the Spirit of Christ who reveals the thoughts of God and the Word of God about the Son of God. And because he revealed these things to us and we've received them from him, we actually have the spirit, the mindset of Christ. We have the spirit of Christ. We have the mind of Christ because we have the spirit. We can think God's thoughts after him. And while nobody instructs the Lord, the Lord himself instructs us believers to a life of wisdom and power found in the person and work of Christ. So what about you? Have you received the Spirit? Have you believed in Christ crucified and risen for you? If so, brothers and sisters, let's go on further into the deep things of God.
and press on into maturity. Let's keep discovering afresh what it means to have the mind of Christ. And let's keep the message of Christ crucified on our lips. Because we preach Christ, church. So let's preach Christ, church. And watch what God does. For we don't know who he'll reveal himself to next. But thanks be to God, he chooses to use people like us in this great endeavor. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we have just touched some of the things of your word that uh, to us cause us to marvel. And we don't even really know what to say other than thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to you, Lord, for the way that you've worked in us through human preachers, and we pray that you continue to do that through the many opportunities that you'll give us uh, even this week to tell people about the, the glorious Lord, Jesus Christ. And we pray that you'd be honored and glorified, that your spirit would work and continue to work in our hearts to mature us into these things deeper and to give us a sensitivity to the, uh, the gospel of grace in our own hearts. Use us as people, Lord, we pray. Use this church in this city, we pray. You told Paul that you had many in that city of Corinth, which by human standards we would say was a dark place. And Lord, we know Ottawa can be a dark place, but we pray that you would continue to use us to bring in many who are your people in this city. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.